Uh, We continue now in our sermon series uh, looking at the book of Genesis. And as you've already likely noticed, I have done my best. I've tried to primarily keep to leaning into uh, what the particular text from Genesis each week would have meant uh, to the original audience um, and then apply to us where, it, where it's appropriate. Uh, because uh, we could have, of course, uh, said each week, in each one of these passages we've already looked at, we could have said a whole lot more. <laughs> we could spend a lot more time just camping out uh, in so much here. But I've desired to keep us moving. Um, I don't want this Genesis to be the only study that uh, we do while I'm engaging, while I'm here. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to interact uh, with nearly everything, at least, that Genesis says, um, though maybe not as concerned with how future revelation and scripture engages some of this text. We just don't have the time. <laughs> There's so much more. Now, having said that, uh, this next ses- section, the passage I'm about to read, uh, we're going to actually camp out for two weeks here. <laughs> Uh, this is one passage where there's just too much here. Uh, we could honestly spend many weeks in this particular passage. I'm going to try to keep us to two, um, but there's, there's a lot to be gleaned from here. Um, it's, it's a passage that we are right to call uh, the first wedding in human civilization. And therefore, of course, it tells us something about marriage, but it tells us much, much more. Uh, than just about marriage. And so with that introduction, uh, will you follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 2. We will finish uh, to the end of this chapter, verses 18 to 25. This is God's holy word. Then the Lord God, Yahweh, said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. This ends the reading of God's word. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would meet with us, speak to us from this, your word. It's not 
any human wisdom we need to hear this morning. We are begging, we are asking that we might hear from you, the one with words of eternal life, Jesus. So I pray now that you would work through me, with me, work around me, work in spite of me, whatever is required. But Jesus, by your spirit, get through to us with this, your word, that we might know that we have met with the eternal living God this morning through these words. We pray for your sake, Jesus. Amen. Well, we live in an extraordinary and paradoxical time. While on the one hand, the number of people that you and I are linked to or connected to uh, via social media is exponentially higher than ever before in the history of human civilization, (laughs) the number of people that you are connected to, at the same time, sociologists will tell us that we are simultaneously more deficient in true relationship, possibly more now than at any other time. Paradox. And so while the greater access to people has fueled greater transmission of data and information, it has not helped address something that is absolutely intrinsic and essential to who we are as human beings created in the image of a triune God. Something that this passage clearly speaks to. Thus far in Genesis, Yahweh has been creating a physical space for himself to dwell with other beings that he voluntarily decided to share himself with. The God of the Bible did not have to do this, we have said. (laughs) Unlike how we, how you and me, how as men and women we think and navigate life and make decisions, God was not lonely. He was not insecure. He was not afraid. He wasn't struggling with codependency. God had nothing to prove. He wasn't in need of justifying his existence and the value of his contributions to others in this life. In other words, he was not in need of other creatures at all of any kind to make him feel good about himself. And furthermore, unlike you and me, God is not limited in how wide his relational capacity is. And apparently he desired lots of his image bears around to both share friendship with and to also work and to keep the place that he had created. And thus far things have been progressing nicely again and again, we have heard. It is good. It is good. It is good. But then enters a problem. And we aren't even into Genesis 3 yet. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 18, God says, It is not good for man to be alone. Pause right there a second. (laughs) Thus far we have seen and heard 
from God, from Yahweh, blessing after blessing, God's benediction on what he has made. But for the first time and before any sin or selfishness or fallenness or brokenness has entered the world, God himself speaks not a benediction, but the first maladdiction. For the very first time, God admits and acknowledges himself about the current situation of his creative work that something is not good. Do you catch the profundity in that when God says it is not good for man to be alone? Adam and God together only in perfect perfection was not sufficient for Adam. Rather, it is built into our very DNA as human beings created again in the image of a triune God who dwells throughout all eternity in relational community within the Godhead. To be in relationship with other image-bearing human beings. We cannot fulfill the cultural mandate, the first great commission for all humanity to be fruitful and to multiply, to subdue and take dominion, to be as image bearers alone. It's impossible. And not just because we can't procreate on our own, that's part of it. We just are not meant to do life and carry out our vocation as God's image bearing vice regents on our own. I don't care how independent or autonomous you feel this morning (laughs) by nature (laughs) none of us were designed to do life on our own (laughs) in fact there's actually no way to even have a genuine loving relationship with and toward god himself outside of relationships with other human beings do you remember when jesus was once asked and it was a way to try to trip him up trap him Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responds, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he added, and the second is like the first. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus is asked (laughs) asked for one, (laughs) the greatest Jesus answers with two. Because for Jesus, the two commandments are inextricably linked. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. And that's because of what we're told right here in Genesis 2. To be made in the image of a triune God means to necessarily be in relationship with other image bearers of this triune God. Now, certainly for a vast array of personalities, as vast as the being of an eternal triune God with extroverts and introverts, with verbal processors and internal thinkers, with gregarious types and more hermit-leaning types, how this plays out will vary and will look very different for all of us. But what doesn't change among us In all the diversity of our personalities, however, is the reality of our inability to function humanly solo. (laughs) 
impossible. And furthermore, both Genesis 2 and Jesus and even the Apostle John in his epistle would contend that if you want to assess your love for God, (laughs) assess your relationships towards others. For there is any fracturing there that is in your capacity to address and yet you are unwilling to deal with your intimacy with God will only, can only be hampered. And so this is, this text, this reality that we are not, we cannot do life on our own, is why you will hear more and more this year why city groups are so important here at New City. You simply can't follow Jesus as his disciple. You can't do this Christian life outside of community and in relationship with others. Now, of course, you're never going to find the term city groups in your Bible. It's not there. I'll give you a heads up. (laughs) But what we're seeking to embody within the context of our city groups is what we do find in the Bible among God's community of faith, a place to find fellowship and community where we are all pointing each other towards Jesus Christ and to what we are all about as a church, playing our role in Jesus' grand work of making all things new. So if you are here this morning and have not yet found your way into a city group, may I gently challenge you this morning to change that? (laughs) And if there are logistical reasons that keep you from being able to join, please come and talk to me or a member of the steering team because because in this current season, we genuinely want to bolster the effectiveness of the community and fellowship that's experienced in our city groups. Because that, we're open to better understanding what might still be keeping some from being part of one. Okay, (laughs) back to the passage. God, you said it's not good for man to be alone. What we do about it. (laughs) Continuing in verse 18, we read, God saying, I will make a helper fit for him. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, I'm not sure what you think of when you hear this English word, helper. But if you've been following along with the narrative and the grand commission and calling that humanity was given, again, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, take dominion, to work and keep it. This is all very kingly and regal language. This calling as helper cannot be an insignificant secondary role. Now, unfortunately, the English phrase, a helper fit for him, does sound kind of limited, kind of like a backup, maybe a behind-the-scenes role, maybe the apprentice that grabs the tools for the master plumber, that helper. (laughs) But that's not the Hebrew phrase. First of all, when God says he will make a helper fit for him, it's a compound phrase that gets at one who rightly matches him or literally like opposite him. God is going to make a helper fit for him that is the opposite and simultaneously complementary and perfect fit and partner. I know that's too long. I know translators don't want it to be that long. I get it. 
That's how I would translate this complex compound Hebrew phrase. An opposite and simultaneously complementary and perfect fit and partner. That's what God's going to make. But furthermore, the specific Hebrew word English translators have translated helper here is azer. And since we're seeking to know how the original audience would have heard this, we need to point out that in the Old Testament, the word azer is used elsewhere for only two reasons. Either on the one hand to describe a neighboring nation that comes to the military aid of another nation as an ally when they're at war or under attack, that's an azer. (laughs) Or for God. And how he comes to the aid and rescues his people. It's quite often, in fact, used of God in combination with other words meaning either deliverer or shield. In other words, elsewhere, it has no connotation of minor or inferior or secondary or subordinate. None. Zilch. I would humbly suggest that a far better English word than helper would be a strategic ally. This is who God is making for the man. There used to be a bumper sticker. Uh, It's probably still around. Used to be a bumper sticker that read, God is my co-pilot. You've seen this bumper sticker? (laughs) That's really bad theology. If God is simply your co-pilot, we're no longer talking about the God of the Bible. (laughs) But I bring it up here because for me, when Jen comes this week and I introduce her to somebody, if I were ever to introduce my wife Jen as this is the person who helps me, (laughs) would be not too dissimilar to thinking of God in the way that he is our azer as simply our (laughs) co-pilot. It it minimizes what's being said and conveyed. And it was certainly stood out to the original audience that it's not even close how much the writer of Genesis goes out of his way to take the time to describe the unique effort and intention that Yahweh took in making not only the first man, but also the first woman as compared to every other competing cosmological or creation account of the ancient Near Eastern world. For all the other texts that Israel would have been privy to, woman was at best (laughs) an afterthought. An unimportant and unimportant to the storyline. And at worst, merely considered to be agents of all that is disorderly, all that is chaotic, all that is ugly, of all the evil in the world. And so if you were here this morning, perhaps not yet a follower of Jesus, and if you're looking to critique historical Christianity because of what you perceive as a negative view about women, specifically perhaps from something you might have heard on male Headship. I would encourage you not to look at the worst examples in the history of sinful humanity, but look to what the Bible itself says. And even compare Christian scripture with the cultural context within which it was written. Do you realize that when Paul refers to this passage in Ephesians and writes on marriage 
to the church gathered there in Ephesus, what he says to the wives there in the congregation would not have been surprising. Wives, respect your husbands. In that patriarchal culture, those words would have simply just slid right on by almost unnoticed. (laughs) You know what it would have been noticed and absolutely shocking and astonishing? His instructions to the husbands. Both because the amount of ink he spends on giving instructions to how husbands are to self-sacrificially love their wives, but also that radical reorienting of what the relationship between a husband and a wife is to look like. You see, in the Greco-Roman world into which Paul was writing, wives were essentially property over which husbands had almost absolute power and could be dispensed with at the whim of the husband. But using this passage from Genesis and Jesus' own self-sacrificial and self-giving love as his basis, Paul injects a profound theological foundation for marriage that must have been absolutely extraordinary to hear by a husband of the first century Greco-Roman world. The Apostle Paul has often been accused of being misogynistic. (laughs) He would not have been accused of being misogynistic in his day. (laughs) But we need to come back to our text. How does God go about his plan to make an azer for Adam? Thus far, and we noted this last week, when God decides to do something, he simply does it or says it. That's not how he goes about it here. Instead, what do we read? Verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. The bird of the heavens brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds, the heavens, and every beast of the field. At first glance, this might seem like a bit of a rabbit trail of sorts. (laughs) What's going on here? How do we get off track here? What's happening is that the land creatures are brought before Adam, not simply to be named by him, but more importantly, to potentially, hopefully even, find a suitable azer for him. Remember last week, we point out the eminence and the close and proximate involvement of Yahweh in making the first human in a way that was unique to his creating everything else. He formed the man out of the dust of the ground and then God himself breathed life into him. Here we are told that, yes, there are some other creatures that are formed out of the ground. Certainly not an exact or full duplication of Yahweh's unique involvement in creating the first human, but the language is at least similar enough to cause one to wonder if God perhaps had already created an appropriate azer for Adam. Maybe it will be found. But then we read the second part of verse 20. But for Adam was not found an azer fit for him. The author is building tension here for his ancient Near Eastern audience. See, Adam is going through the whole process in order to realize for himself what God already knew. 
It's almost as if God designs Adam to go through this process only to more fully recognize and come to grips with the fact that it's not good for an image bearer to be alone. And so Adam is feeling his aloneness (laughs) acutely. And the truth is, every one of us in this room this morning, at one time or another, to some degree or another, have felt this reality deep down in our souls. We have palpably felt it is not good to be alone. Some of you may even know a kind of tension-building reality right now in your own life that God has currently ordained for this particular season for you right now. Perhaps you are currently experiencing an acute sense of your aloneness. And it's not only singles who might feel this. Even in marriage itself, this side of the fall, this aloneness and loneliness can be felt. This aloneness might be the longing for a relationship. This aloneness might be the mourning of the loss of a relationship. This aloneness might be the heartache of what it feels like to feel abandoned in the midst of a relationship. For anyone who might be experiencing, feeling that acute sense of your aloneness this morning, I want you to hear as hard and difficult as it is that God is still in the process. And his allowing you to experience that reality is not some sick cosmic joke, nor is it a sign of his displeasure in you. Rather, it may very well be that on this side of Genesis 3 and the fall, that it is in this season that God is allowing you to particularly experience your aloneness in a way that is deeply painful and agonizing in order to demonstrate himself as one who is fully faithful to you. And that while it is true, yes, we are built not to do this life alone, that does not mean We will or even can find our ultimate worth or fulfillment in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. This side of Genesis 3, we are not promised an immediate relief to our sense of aloneness, but we are promised that there is a love towards us that is far greater and far more satisfying and more steadfast and faithful than anything we will ever find horizontally in this world. And so if you are here married or not and in your aloneness, that is the reality that it is not good to be alone. If that is acute and palpable right now, know that God sees you. He's not unaware of it. He's not indifferent to it. He's not left you on your own to navigate. When my oldest son, Bud, was eight, yeah, I had recently finished seminary. We were living in Atlanta, Georgia. I was on staff with Perimeter Church. And one night, uh, I, could, I could not get Bud to go to bed. He was eight. 
His brothers were already bathed, teeth were brushed, they were in bed, Bud refused. This is 10.30 at night. He finally looked at Jen and me and he said, I'm done with this family. I'm running away. He was eight. I decided to call his bluff. I said, all right, bud. But you're going to need some clothes to change into. You're going to need something to eat on your travels. Why don't you go upstairs, pack a bag of clothes. I'll go in the kitchen, make you at least a lunch for tomorrow. That'll help you out on your journey. Jen looked at me like, what are you doing? I said, just go with me on this. Just, Just go with me. In a few moments, he came back downstairs. By then, I was standing with the front door open, and I had a paper bag holding his lunch outstretched as he's coming down the stairs. He marches downstairs without even looking at me, grabbed the paper bag out of my hand, walked out the door, and I closed the door behind him. Jen is now seriously worried about my fitness to be a father. I then went out the back door, worked my way to the front, started following my son down the street. We lived in a cul-de-sac at the very top of the hill. And so I'm moving from behind a bush to a tree, to another bush, to another tree, 10.30 at night, pitch black, following him all the way. He finally gets to the place where our cul-de-sac intersects with another road and deads in. At that point, you have to make a decision. Do you go left or right? This is exactly what my eight-year-old son did. He walked in the middle of the intersection. He's got his backpack here. He's got his lunch here. Stood in the middle of the intersection. Turned to the left. Thought. Turned to the right. Thought. And then just let out this. He turned around, marched all the way back up to the house, opened the front door, went up the stairs, went to bed. (laughs) The entire time he thought he was alone. He thought he was on his own. He was never outside of my sight or outside of my protective care despite the fact that he thought he was all alone. No matter what your aloneness might feel like right now, no matter how you have gotten to aloneness, because of Jesus Christ, you are never out of the sight or the protective care of your heavenly Father and his faithful love for you. God is so committed to continuing to extend his everlasting love and kindness to even us as sinful, rebellious creatures that he gave his only son. And his only son, this Jesus, knew a cosmic aloneness on a scale that you and I will never have to experience when we place our faith and hope in him. The Bible tells us that this Jesus in experiencing cosmic aloneness was despised and rejected by men. His closest friends, the Gospels tell us, his disciples had mostly abandoned him. One had betrayed him for money. 
His closest even denied knowing him, even cursing when someone pointed out he saw them together. Bible tells that he was that this Jesus was even stricken and smitten by God himself, his own father and afflicted. On the cross, Jesus knew what it was to be alone when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All that was done on your behalf that you might never know, might never experience that type of aloneness. The eternal communion that had existed within the triune Godhead that was first shared at creation, then spurned by us through our fallenness, our sin, and our rebellion as his image bearers was then at the cross, at least for a moment, fractured. That union was fractured that you and I might know full restoration to the faithful communion and love and acceptance that God offers once again. Do you believe that this morning? Your God went out of the way that much. Despite the fact that we went out of our way to do our own thing, to try to separate ourselves from him, he goes out of his way and even experiences cosmic aloneness within the Godhead that he might bring you back to himself and love you for all eternity. That's the gospel. Believe that this morning, either for the first time or the thousandth time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is nearly impossible for us to imagine, Jesus, what you must have been experiencing when you were on that cross and you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know what it is to feel that aloneness. We've experienced it. Some of us are experiencing it very acutely right now. But to be completely abandoned from your own Father, that sense, when throughout all eternity you experience perfect communion, it is hard for us, almost probably impossible, to, and it, will, it is impossible to fully grasp. Help us to grasp it enough. Jesus, what you are willing to go through on our behalf, that we might once again be brought back into your family, be called your sons and daughters, and never know a day when there was any reason to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Help us to believe that this morning in a new and fresh way. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.